This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks for tuning in today. Hey, joining me in segments two and three on today's program is Mr. Gerald Salente, the publisher of Trends Journal. Mr. Salente is always entertaining, very engaging and enlightening guy to talk to. We're going to get his forecast for what he calls the presidential reality show. We're going to talk a little politics and perhaps even more importantly, we're going to talk about what's going on in the economy and the financial markets and get his take. So stay tuned for that. You know, in this segment today and in the last segment of today's program, I want to talk to you about a gentleman by the name of Jesse Livermore. Now, it's my guess that most of you listening to today's program have never heard of Jesse Livermore. That's because Mr. Livermore was born in 1877 and died in 1940. However, if there was reality TV in the 20s and 30s, Mr. Livermore and his family and multiple wives would have easily displaced the Kardashians when it comes to reality TV ratings. Now, why do I bring up Mr. Livermore? Well, he is regarded by many as the greatest trader or investor that ever lived. Today, many in the investing and trading business consider Livermore a legend, despite having a personal life that played out like a Greek tragedy. Now, Livermore pioneered some of the trading strategies that are still used today. In fact, when he developed these strategies, they were revolutionary, and yet many of them are still used today, almost 100 years later, and have become really uh, core fundamental strategies that traders learn when they first get into the business. Now, to give you just a bit of Livermore's background, he was born into poverty, in fact, he was born right after the Long Depression of 1873 got started, so there was no shortage of poor families in the 1870s. Like many families, Livermore's family was involved in agriculture. Now, Jesse was not excited about jumping into the future his parents had planned for them, he and his 12 siblings. He had said, Jesse, you're going to stay home and work on the farm. So to avoid that future, he ran away from home at the age of 14 with the $5 he'd managed to save and scrape together. Well, almost immediately, he found a job with Payne Weber as a board boy. Now, if you're not familiar with a board boy at the time, a board boy was simply someone that would run prices and post them. It was obviously in the days pre-electronics, pre-technology, so they would simply update the prices manually. That was the job of a board boy. Well, as Livermore updated these prices, he began to observe how stock prices moved, and he started to make his own price predictions. And then later, when he had time, he would go back and research how those forecasts had played out. And this is how he developed his investing strategies. He became very successful. While he was still a teenager, Livermore started to trade in the bucket shops of Boston and New York. Now, a bucket shop was just a brokerage firm uh, that maybe had a less than stellar reputation. 
Well, Livermore made so much money trading that he was eventually banned from these bucket shops. When banks failed and the panic of 1907 set in, he made a fortune. In fact, J.P. Morgan stepped in and asked Jesse to stop short-selling the market for the good of the country, and Livermore complied. Livermore sold the market short before the market crashed in 1929. Now, if you're selling the market short, you're making money as the market declined, and Livermore made a lot of money. He entered the Great Depression with $100 million in cash, and he'd made it all from trading. Now, just to put that into perspective, if we adjust $100 million for inflation, today that's pushing $2 billion, which would have landed Livermore on the Forbes 400 list, which names the 400 wealthiest Americans. Now, Livermore worked out of a penthouse on Fifth Avenue in New York. It was highly secure. No one could get in. Livermore made his trades in total secrecy and total silence. In fact, all of Livermore's employees were forbidden from speaking or making noise until the market closed. Now, without going into too much detail about Livermore's personal life, he was married three times. In fact, he got married the first time in 1900, and as he was making lots of money, he bought his wife a lot of expensive jewelry. Well, about a year into the marriage, Livermore was looking to raise some cash to fund his trading, and he asked his new, bo- new bride to pawn her rather substantial jewelry collection, and she decided she liked the jewelry more than Jesse, and they eventually divorced. He remarried in 1923 to a showgirl that was 23 years younger than him. He and that wife had two children. She eventually left him and moved to Nevada with the two sons. He married then the th- for the third time in 1933, and he married a singer. Her name was Harriet Metz Noble. Miss Noble was from a wealthy family who'd made a lot of money in breweries, and Miss Noble had Livermore for her third husband, and Livermore had Miss Noble for his third wife. Now, interestingly, Arthur Noble who was Miss Noble's second husband, committed suicide in 1930 after losing all his money in the Wall Street crash. So her second husband lost everything when Wall Street crashed, but Livermore got wealthy during the Wall Street crash. Well, in 1940, after his second wife, Dorothy, shot one of their sons in a heated, drunken argument, which created a huge scandal at the time, Livermore took his own life in a Manhattan hotel in 1940. Now, personal failures and tragedy aside, Livermore offered some very sage investing advice, and that's why I bring the story up today. Livermore said three things that are important. First of all, he said, look at what the herd is doing and then do the opposite. In other words, don't follow the crowd. Here are Livermore's own words. He said, I believe the public wants to be led, to be instructed, to be told what to do. They want reassurance. They will always move en masse, a mob, a herd, a group, because people want the safety of human company. They are afraid to stand alone because they want to be safely included within the herd, not to be the lone calf standing on the desolate, 
dangerous, wolf-patrolled prairie of contrary opinion. Now, Livermore also said that history repeats itself, which is one of our core beliefs and is repeated often in the best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Livermore said this, All through time, people have basically acted and reacted the same way in the market as a result of greed, fear, ignorance, and hope. That is why the numerical formations and patterns recur on a constant basis. Livermore said, essentially, things cycle, and these cycles repeat themselves. And finally, Livermore said this, It was never my thinking that made the big money for me. It was my sitting. In other words, be patient and wait for the right opportunity. So, to summarize, Livermore said, The herd is always eventually wrong. He also said investing history repeats itself, so study history and finally be patient and wait for the right opportunity. In the last segment of today's program, I'm going to talk to you about how to apply these principles and what it means today in my view. Stay tuned for the last segment. I'll be back after these words with my special guest expert this week, Mr. Gerald Salente. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am very pleased to have joining me on today's program once again, Mr. Gerald Salente. Uh, Gerald is the publisher of a terrific publication called Trends Journal, History Before It Happens. You can learn more about the publication at trendsresearch.com, and I would encourage you to check it out. Gerald, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me on, Dennis. Well, Gerald, let me just start, because the cover of the most recent Trends Journal talks about the headline is the next recession beware these wild cards will crash the market so let me just start with a right a, a direct question are we currently in a recession in your view no not at all um there's a global slowdown to some extent and what's propped the economies up is this monetary methadone that they keep shooting into the bull to keep it running and now what you're seeing is the pressure from central banks around the world to lower interest rates. You're seeing the numbers coming out, whether from Germany, uh, India, uh, China, uh, across the globe. You're seeing weaker and weaker GDP growth, manufacturing growth slowing down, and more and more talk about Of course, in Europe and Japan, they cannot lower interest rates much more, being that they're in negative territory already. And uh, if you want to buy one of those German bonds, you can for uh, negative uh, interest rates. So isn't that something? You buy a 10-year bond, and uh, in 10 years when you cash it in, you get less than what you bought it for. Same thing in Japan. So what they're going to do when you're seeing the pressure from President Trump on the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates. And that's going to continue to artificially prop up the global economy. And with the EU, of course, more quantitative easing, that nearly $3 trillion that they dumped in in corporate and government bond buybacks wasn't enough. And it's not enough in America either. 
so the difference is America could lower interest rates and do quantitative easing because the others are in negative territory, a lot of them. And that's going to continue, we believe, until after the 2020 election. So they're going to do everything they can to keep the economy propped up. So, Gerald, are we headed back here? I mean, I guess you kind of alluded to that, but, you know, with the, with the Fed changing its posture significantly over the last six or seven months, going from tightening now to easing, I mean, do you see us going back to, to, to more QE, to more money printing here? And uh, if so, uh, how does that play out? Does it play out like it did before? Or are we going to see negative interest rates here as well? Who knows? I mean, we may have negative interest rates here as well. The, the whole system is different. You know, people say to me, you know, yeah, you, you call the crash of 87, the dot-com bust. Uh, I took out the domain name, the panic of 08 in 2007. But you said the whole thing would crash again in 2012. And I say, you're right. I got it wrong. I got it wrong because I never heard of negative interest rates and quantitative easing. They didn't teach me that in Economics 101 <laughs> or graduate school. So they make this stuff up. Look, let's put this into perspective. They call these people investors. They're not investors, they're addicts. Just like a drug addict is hooked on opiates or whatever they're hooked on. These are money addicts. And all they want to do is keep their, their game going. So they'll do anything to keep it going. They're addicts. So that's why I call it monetary methadone. This isn't real money. That's why you're seeing gold prices, you know, snap back up to the $1,400 an ounce range. And I've been calling this for six years that I was negative on gold. We sent out a trend alert to our subscribers on June 6th when gold was $1,332 an ounce. It broke over the $1,325 an ounce mark, and, and it kind of stabilized at that. We said the headline was the gold bull run, and that's what we're saying. Gold's on a bull run because around the world, they're going to keep printing more digital money, not worth the paper it's not printed on. And by the way, that's why you're also seeing a lot of these cryptocurrencies going up. People are looking for alternatives to the fiat currencies that they're just flooding the world with. So, Gerald, the, the dollar obviously enjoys world reserve currency status. And uh, recently, uh, Russian President Putin said that uh, that, that had to change and uh, Russia has been accumulating gold. And there's some rumors out there that Russia is now... Uh, potentially working on a gold-backed cryptocurrency. Um, what do you make of that rumor? Is there any validity to that? There's validity to it, and Russia's meeting with China and, uh, as well. And what you're looking at is they're trying to come up with another reserve currency. But they got a long way to go. And when you look at the prominence of the dollar on the forex markets is a reserve currency and the trading going on in it. The ruble doesn't even come in and the Chinese yuan is only about 2%. The euro comes in next in the, in the 30s to 40s range at best. And the euro is going to get weaker because now, of course, Christine Lagarde is the new 
head of the European Central Bank, which soon to be, I should say, in October, when Mario Draghi leaves. And they're already talking about more quantitative easing. The only reason the dollar is strong is because all the other currencies are so weak. And so what's going to happen, yes, they're all trying to come up with a reserve currency that's going to put the dollar in, in second place. But they have a long way to go with this, considering the size of their economies compared to the United States. And what's really going to change it, and this is one of the ones we keep talking about, is if they get off the petrodollar. Because if you have to buy your your energy in currencies, as now Russia and China are doing, they're trading in, in yuan and rubles, then that's going to exclude the dollar. And now with other nations not wanting to go against the Iranian anti-nuclear deal and still doing trade with them, they're setting up a new system as well so they could trade with Iran outside the SWIFT system. Uh, that's the uh, the SWIFT system that the United States dominates. So the trend is definitely there. And if there's some kind of a crisis that happens where the dollar is abandoned, that will be the end of the United States as the world's number one economy. There's no question about it. And the other no question about it is that China's on its way in the next several years actually to outpace the United States as the world's largest economy. So the yuan will definitely grow in stature and prominence and use. So we're chatting, if you're just joining us today, with Mr. Gerald Salente. Gerald is the publisher of Trends Journal. You can learn more at trendsresearch.com. And in your latest Trends Journal, Gerald, uh, there's a piece that said you're looking at probably recession or maybe depression by late 2020, early 2021. Um, what makes you pinpoint that point in time? Oh, simple. The presidential reality show in the United States. <laughs> and that Trump is going to do everything he can to keep interest rates low. The guy's in the real estate business. He knows what happens. Interest rates go up, real estate goes down. So too does the economy. As I mentioned, the only thing that propped us up after the panic of 08 was the unprecedented money printing. What do we have? It was back uh, about eight months ago, $250 trillion worth of debt. And now, of course, it's much higher than that. We haven't seen the new numbers come out. And people, if they think that the president doesn't have power over the Federal Reserve, they should do a little bit of reading. Look what happened when Nixon was president and he called in Burns and said to him not to raise, in, to, not to raise interest rates, even though inflation was going up. And what did Burns do? He didn't raise interest rates. Read Paul Volcker's latest book called into the Oval Office by James Baker, the chief of staff under Reagan, go to the library, Reagan sits down next to Baker, doesn't say a word, and Baker looks at Volcker and says, you have orders from the president not to raise interest rates before the election. As that old saying goes during the 1992 presidential race with Clinton, the campaign uh, staff always were reminded, quote, it's the economy, stupid. And that's all it is. The economy is going to be the major issue of 2020 election. All this other stuff is side talk. And Trump is going to do everything he can to keep the economy propped up. And the way they're going to prop it up is with more monetary methodone. So we're saying that the, the Great Recession Class 
depression, greatest depression, is going to happen after the elections because that's when the powder is going to start to dry up. These lower interest rates are only going to do so much for so long. America's on a steep decline. Look, look, look at the negative aspects coming now out about earnings potential for corporations in this latest quarter. Seventy-seven percent are saying, you know, they expect lower corporate earnings. So remember what propped the corporate earnings up in 2018: the tax deal that went to the one percent in the major corporations, and you saw stock buybacks at an all-time high, almost a trillion dollars worth. So that's all starting to dry up. When it dry up, dries up, the economy goes down. So, Gerald, you mentioned the presidential reality show, which uh, is a very, uh, very catchy term to describe what we're going through here, and, and very applicable, I might add, as well. Now that we've been through the first Democratic uh, debates, uh, how do you see the whole Democratic side of things shaping up? Nothing. Uh, we don't see any any dynam- uh, dynamics coming out of that that are going to change much. And um, at this point in the game, we see Trump winning again. Uh, again, I'm a political atheist. We just call these things the way we see them. I'm not. I didn't vote in the last election for for the president. None of them. I don't. I don't vote for lesser of two evils. Don't do business with them. Don't hang out with them. And, <laughs> uh, don't have relationships with them. So when what we as as a magazine, the Trends Journal, we just look at things the way they are, not the way we want them to be. So having said that, you know, Trump is still playing the Trump card. And there's nobody there that we believe is going to be able to uh, overtake him at this point. Again, there are a lot of wild cards that can be played. And again, Trump is the wildest. Uh, Trump cards are the wildest of wild cards. So you never know what's going to come up between now and November 2020. But as it stands now, you know, we would, we, we, we'd say that Trump is going to defeat the leaders of the pack right now in the Democratic side. So, Gerald, when you take a look at the Democratic side of things, it seems like there's a race to see who can get to to the furthest left. Um, what do you see driving that? Well, it's discontent among the majority of the population uh, that can't find uh, paying jobs. I mean, median household incomes below 1999 levels. Look at the data coming out all the time on housing. It's one negative aspect after another. The millennials can't afford them. So uh, you're looking also at, wow, look at the growth in apartment building. It's it's off the charts. Millennials can't afford to buy, so they're renting. And look at the average wages. I mean, you work for Amazon, what do you make? You know, uh, full-time job, $28,000 a year. By the time you pay your health care, your taxes, and everything else, what are you left with? Sixty-two fifty a week and a hernia. You know, so people are going into a different direction. And they they want that's going to be by the way the major issues are going to be the economy, uh, healthcare, borders, and uh, student debt. Those are going to be the the big ones. And Trump will win on the border issue, uh, the uh, healthcare issue. He probably won't, and that affects you know just about everybody. And on the um, the student debt issue, that'll go into nowhere because no one really expects a reality of a Bernie Sanders deal that we're going to pay off all the student debt and give them a free ride. 
Well, we are going to have to leave it there for this segment. Our guest today is Mr. Gerald Salente, and I'll continue my conversation with Gerald when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am joined today by Mr. Gerald Salente, publisher of Trends Journal. You can learn more at trendsresearch.com. And, Gerald, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going on. There's some, there's some tough talk now regarding Iran. Uh, seems like uh, there's some war drums potentially beating, or at least they're pulling them out. Uh, how do you read that? Well, one, we've been on this in the Trends Journal since 2018. One of our top trends was um, market crash, mass murder, meaning that the markets would crash if an Iran war broke out. And we saw the formation of Israel, the United States, and Saudi Arabia uh, trying to take out Iran. And that's continued. The sanctions against Iran that the United States has put on them, that's economic warfare. What happened recently with the United States drone being shot down uh, by the Iranians, Iran said it was over their territory, the United States said it wasn't, but this wasn't just, you know, the drone you see flying around, you know, this is what, between a hundred million to two hundred million dollar piece of equipment, depending on whose numbers you believe, and it was shot down by a sophisticated weapon. We don't believe there's going to be a war with Iran, not started by the United States, certainly. Maybe between Israel and, and Iran, something might happen because the Israeli prime minister, Netanyahu, is in big trouble. Uh, he can't get real. He won the election, but he can't put together a party. And one of the deals that he wanted in putting together a party, a coalition, I should say, is that uh, he would be exonerated from any kind of criminal activities that he was being put up on charges, and they wouldn't do that. So I'm mentioning that because, as I say, when all else fails, they take you to war. The reason to me that Trump pulled back at the last 10 minutes and didn't counterattack Iran, not because he said we were going to kill about 150 Iranian people, is because Iran would have retaliated. And the United States battle group in the, in the Straits of Hormuz, you might as well call it Pearl Harbor. They're sitting ducks. Battleship groups, and that's what they are. These are battleships. This is World War I technology in the 21st century. They're sitting targets in a day of uh, you know, hypersonic uh, weaponry and laser weaponry and on and on. So if the United States would have attacked, it would have been it would have been a strike back by Iran that would have devastated a lot of American ships and killed a lot of people. And it would have been the beginning of World War Three. This is not Libya. This is not Iraq. It's not Syria. It's Iran. Syria. They've been there, the Persians, for how many thousands of years? They're not going anywhere. This is a sophisticated society. So my belief is that they didn't push this forward because of the implications of what could happen. And also very interesting, you're seeing the same thing happening in Venezuela with the United States trying to overthrow that country and also you know, the coup attempt. 
and taking Maduro out, but the sanctions. Again, these sanctions are nothing more than economic warfare that hurt the average person, not the top leadership. But the point I want to make, even with the sanctions on Iran, even with the sanctions on, on Venezuela and the inability of them to sell oil at the level they were selling it at, pulling that much oil off the market each day, oil prices remain soft. And remember, Saudi Arabia needs oil at $100 a barrel for Brent crude for its economy to break even. And now, of course, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at oil, you know, in the $65 a barrel range between 60 to $65 a barrel. So it, it's, it's very risky, but it's not bringing down oil prices because there's too much supply and not enough demand. And that's the point that I want to make. There's a global slow down. All things are connected. So as we're looking at this whole picture, we have to put the entire picture together. And so even if war breaks, if but if war breaks out in the Middle East, then you're going to see oil prices spike above $100 a barrel, and that'll crash economies and equity markets worldwide. And again, that's why gold again is being played as that safe haven asset as well, having nothing to do at all with the so-called trade wars. There is no trade war. The tariffs that Trump put on China amount to the grand total of 0.6% of China's GDP. So, Joe, when you talk about the big global picture and a global slowdown, uh, big story out here this past week, Deutsche Bank uh, announced 18,000 job cuts worldwide. Uh, to what extent do you attribute that move by Deutsche Bank to this overall global slowdown? Well, it, it, the banks have greatly overextended. Then you, you take a look at China. They're lowering their reserve ratio requirements of banks so they can pump out more dough. Hey, how come we didn't bail out Deutsche Bank? You know, people say, by the way, with the presidential reality show, oh, by the way, we own that trademark. <laughs> and, and it wasn't from Trump. I saw it when Obama ran, when, o when Oprah took, her under, took him under her wing. I was on Oprah twice, and I've been on all the major shows. Nobody ran a show like her. And I knew when the queen of talk show took Obama it became over under her wing, it became the presidential reality show. He knew how to read those <laughs> teleprompters perfectly. But anyway, and put on the act. Going back to um, what we were talking about with, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Just with Deutsche Bank. With Deutsche Bank is that with the presidential reality show, they call it America moving towards socialism, as you were mentioning before, moving to the left. In capitalism, Dennis, there is no such thing as too big to fail. Who made this crap up? Oh, no, we got to save the banksters. Oh, if something happens to them, ooh, it would be terrible. Remember that line? So now Deutsche Bank, they got enough background over there to take care of this. But if another couple start happening, then the house of cards comes crashing down. And, of course, the good news for Deutsche Bank is the clown that brought it down, they gave him an $11 million farewell package. I saw that. And that's, yeah, and that's why you see people rising up against the so-called establishment. All it's become is slave landia. That's why you see these people that are going to the left, when you asked me. 
They have lousy jobs. They have no benefits. Look, when I was a, they, they deregulated all these antitrust acts. There were no WalMarts or or Home Depots or Lowe's or Staples. There were grocery stores. There were hardware stores. There were stationery stores. There were mom and pop's, pops, dress shops, men's shops. They gave everything to the to the multinational plantations, and everybody feels like they're just plantation workers on slave landia. That's why you're seeing this backlash in votes around the world. Joe, we have just a, a couple minutes left, and in your most recent Trends Journal on a completely different tag, but I thought it was interesting, uh, you talk about the Daily Newspaper, which is really an American institution, being on life support. Uh, how do you see this playing out, and what's replacing it? It's gone. It's gone. There, there's it, people. They all they are. You know why they call these things handhelds that everybody has? Because they're masturbating in public. <laughs> all they're doing is looking at these little tweets and bleeps and this and that. I've been in this business forty years. I have to read all day long. I read four to six hours a day. You don't read a book by reading one paragraph or a synopsis of it. You have to know the details. And the details are dead. There is no journalism in this world anymore. So you're not getting the in-depth stories. Pick up the New York Times. They call themselves the paper of record. How about the toilet paper record? Because it only has one good use anymore. Go to the business section. A whole half a page of some stupid photo. Go throughout the newspaper, half page, three quarter page photos, filling up where they used to be typeface, where they used to be reporting. People don't have a clue what's going on. And the mainstream media has just dumbed it down even more. And that's why I call them prostitutes, because they get paid to put out by their corporate johns and government whoremasters, because you're not getting news anymore. Well, we are going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Gerald Salente. He is the publisher of Trends Journal. You can learn more at trendsresearch.com. And, Gerald, always a pleasure to have you on the program, and we do appreciate you joining us today very much, and hope you'll come back. Oh, thank you for having me on, Dennis, and all the best, and thank you for all that you do. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening today, and thanks again to our special guest, Trends Journal publisher Gerald Salente for joining us on today's program. In the first segment of today's program, I talked about the story of Jesse Livermore. Now, if you're just joining us and you didn't happen to catch who Jesse Livermore was, he lived a life of really personal tragedy. However, he is arguably one of the best traders or investors that ever lived. He went into the Great Depression after selling the market short, which means you profit from a market downturn. He went into the Great Depression with $100 million, which is the equivalent of almost $2 billion today. In the first segment, I shared with you the three 
principles of investing that Jesse Livermore advocated. He said, first of all, the herd, the masses, are almost always eventually wrong. You need to take a contrarian approach. Secondly, investing history repeats itself. This is something that we talk about a lot here at RLA Radio. The reason that investing history repeats itself and economic history repeats itself is that human behavior is predictable. Faced with the same set of facts and circumstances, humans tend to behave similarly. And then finally, as Livermore said, it was never my thinking that made the big money for me. It was my sitting. In other words, patience wins. Now, in this segment, I want to talk to you about how you might consider applying these three principles. Now, the first one is that the herd is usually always eventually wrong. That certainly true. As I just indicated, Mr. Livermore used it in 1929 when the herd was bullish, when even cab drivers in New York were giving stock tips Mr. Livermore said, this can't continue, and he shorted the market. He took a contrarian approach and went into the Great Depression with $100 million. Now, there were others like Livermore that made money on the crash. Joseph Kennedy was one, and there was another gentleman. In fact, I have an article that I have in my files uh, from the Telegraph uh, from 2014, and it was an interview with an investor who happened to be 108 at the time uh, by the name of Irving Kahn. And Mr. Kahn actually died a year after this interview uh, was actually done at the age of 109, and he was still managing a billion dollars. Well, he made his first big money in the market during the crash of 1929. In fact, Mr. Kahn said in the interview that in the feverish summer of 1929, speculation had driven up prices to unreasonable levels, he said. So he decided that the way to make money was to short sell a particular share, meaning he would make money from a fall in the price, not a rise. One of my clearest memories is of my first trade, a short sale in a mining company, Magna Copper, he remembered. I borrowed money from an in-law who was certain I would lose it, but was still kind enough to lend it. He said only a fool would bet against the bull market. But by the time the Wall Street crash took hold in autumn, Mr. Khan nearly doubled his money. He said this is a good example of how great enthusiasm in a company or industry is usually a sign of great risk, he said. So this confirms the Jesse Livermore advice. And history does repeat itself. We often talk here on the program about economic cycles. And while this discussion can go much, much longer than just a segment, I'll give you just one example. There is typically an opposite or an inverse relationship between the prices of gold and stocks. So typically, over long periods of time, gold goes up and stocks go down or vice versa. And the way that we like to track this, and those of you that get our weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter are aware of this, we like to track the Dow-to-gold ratio. And the Dow-to-gold ratio is calculated very simply. It's the price of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in dollars 
divided by the price of gold per ounce in dollars. If we have a low extreme, it's good for stocks, and if we have a high extreme, it's good for gold. Now, just to give you an example, in 1929, the Dow to gold ratio was 18. That's what Mr. Livermore and Mr. Kahn saw as market extremes. Well, if you took the price of the, gold, the, price of the Dow and divided by the price of gold, which was $20 an ounce, you came up with 18. That was good for gold and bad for stocks. By the time the stock market bottomed, that ratio was 2. Now, if you go take a look at the beginning of the bull market, which started really in 1980, 1981, the Dow to gold ratio was 1. The Dow was at 850 and gold was $850 an ounce. However, by the time the tech stock bubble peaked at about the turn of the century, that ratio was back to about 40, over 40. Now, it has dropped as far as 7 since then, but it has now climbed back to 20. Now, it's hard to know if we're at an extreme and you want to make sure you know what your potential risk is and you want to put strategies in place to protect yourself. More on that in just a second. But there's a lot going on when you look at the fundamentals of stocks and the fundamentals of gold. And let me talk about it just briefly. The Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank of central banks. It's owned by 60 central banks around the world. So essentially, the Bank of International Settlements is the rulemaking body of world central banks. Well, there was a recent change made earlier this year that allows banks now to mark the bank's gold holdings to, to market, which means adjust the value of, of your gold holdings for whatever the current price of gold is, but you don't have to discount it. Gold is now an acceptable reserve asset right on par with cash. So that recent change indirectly makes gold money once again. Because of this change, or presumably because of this change, central banks have been buying gold at a much faster pace than they were. In 2018, central bank gold purchases were 74% higher than they were in 2017. There are rumors out there that we've been talking about in our monthly newsletter that Russia is working to develop a cryptocurrency that will be gold-backed. I talked to, to Mr. Salente about that in the last segment. And when you look at the stock side of things, much of the stock market's gains over the past couple of years can be attributed to stock buybacks by corporations. Now, that may be coming to an end. MarketWatch recently reported that last quarter, for the first time in seven quarters, corporate share repurchases declined. Couple that with the fact that this bull market may be getting stale. The current bull market, which began in March of 2009, is the longest bull market in history. And when you take a look at the adjusted price-earnings ratio, it's only been higher one other time in history. That was just prior to the tech stock bubble bursting. Now, what does all this mean? Well, perhaps nothing in the immediate future, but the, the, the Fed is now talking about reducing interest rates. That could make the stock market rally again into next year. I've had guests on the program that hold that opinion. However, you want to really make sure that you put the right strategies in place 
And then, as Mr. Livermore advised, be patient. So if you're listening to this today, what should you do? Well, the first thing that I would advise you to do is to assess your risk. One good way to do that is to look at what is your historical drawdown risk. If you hold a particular fund or hold a particular investment, take a look at how that investment performed during the last market crash. Now, just because something happened in the past, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will happen in the future, but it does give you an idea as to what your risk might be. If you saw a 30% decline in your portfolio or would have seen a 30% decline in your portfolio during the last market crash, then you might want to put strategies in place to protect yourself. The reason is that for every loss you have in your portfolio, the subsequent, subsequent rather percentage gain that you have to experience has to be exponentially greater. So for example, if you have a 50% decline in your portfolio, you need a 100% gain after experiencing that loss in order to get back to even. Now we talk about strategies and what you might think about putting in place in your portfolio and how to assess your risk in the New Retirement Rules book. I'd be glad to send you a copy of the best-selling book. All you need to do is go to newretirementrulesbook.com and let us know where to send it, and I'd be very glad to get a copy out to you. Again, that's newretirementrulesbook.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. We'll be back again next week. 